Welcome to the Told Me to Learn and Develop for Medical Educators podcast series from the Frank H. Netter, MD, School of Medicine. This podcast is for busy medical school faculty who want to expand their knowledge in teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Coplett, and I will bring you interviews with experts in medical education, fellow faculty, and medical students to discuss the issues most relevant to today's medical educators. This is our second podcast about clinical skills. And in this episode, Dr. Eileen Rosenberg joins us to talk about helping students learn physical exam, history taking, and clinical reasoning with a focus on helping those students who might be having difficulty learning these clinical skills. Dr. Rosenberg is the Director of the Clinical Arts and Sciences Coaching at QU Netter and the co-director of our academic success team. She's trained in internal medicine and pulmonary medicine and practices at Internal Medicine of Milford, PC. Dr. Rosenberg is an expert in clinical skills education and remediation, and I'm honored to welcome her today. Eileen, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. Eileen, can you tell me a little bit about your role at QU Netter? Because I think that probably most faculty don't know that you're this amazing resource for our students and don't know that our students have you as a resource and that they can actually refer to you? Well, my role is has developed over time, and so I do the remediation for all four years. And so it's very different between the pre-clerkship years and the clerkship years. But if a student is having difficulty in the first year, usually it's history taking or physical exam, then either the student can um, refer themselves to me, or their clinical skills preceptor can refer to me, or the director of the clinical skills course can refer to me. And we have direct communication, and I know many of the preceptors, and so they know what I do, and they know that if a student is having difficulty, that um, I am their resource, and I work with the student in that way. In the second year, the, the problems tend to be more clinical reasoning, how to develop a differential, how to um, start thinking and um, as, a, as a physician and do more hypothesis-driven histories and physicals. And then in the, the clerkship years, it sometimes it's how do they work with the team? How do they function on the wards? How do they do a soap note? How do um, they balance working on the wards and studying for shelves and how to make that successful? And um, Again, clinical reasoning, how to think, how to develop differentials, how to expand their knowledge base tend to be the major issues that occur. And sometimes it's just not knowing what to do or how to act, or sometimes it's professionalism issues that um, come my way. And that case, the clerkship directors will send the, pay the student to me either um, through the mid-clerkship evaluation or the student more likely will refer themselves if they know they're having difficulty. Zoom has been a boom for um, clerkship remediation because the student can do it in privacy. They don't have to get time off. And so they are much more likely to um, avail themselves of, of getting some help. Those are, that's one of the benefits that, that we've gleaned from the pandemic. I'm so happy that our faculty get a chance to to learn what you do and that students have you there as a resource. It really runs the gamut. What, and I'm curious, when you first meet with a student who's having difficulty with clinical skills, where do you start? 
Well, I think I start by by listening to what the student says, hearing what they think the issues are, where they are in their life, what they want to accomplish, and getting that kind of, you know, in medicine, you call it the therapeutic alliance. And in this way, it's kind of like the educational alliance, developing that, that connection where I know what they want. Because I can tell them what I think, but they have to be on that same page and understand why the issues that have been identified are issues and how we can both address them together as a team. I would imagine that they're, that oftentimes they're, they're feeling pretty anxious and it must, it must be hard for some of the students when they get to you too. I think it's very hard for them, and sometimes it's very hard for them to um, have insight into what their issues are. And so, again, like with any feedback, giving direct examples of things. Again, giving what I always say is the why for the what. Why is this an issue? And what can we do about it? So that they know that it's not something that's unique, that it's something that other people have, but also that there's reasons that these are things that we need to work on. And so we need to get on the same page. And I think that's really the key to a successful remediation when the student is on the same page and is working to the same goal. And not just to pass a test, but it's really to be able to become a good physician. That's so interesting because we're talking about, in particular, students who are having difficulty. But as you say that, I think that's probably the key factor whenever you're teaching something or whenever you're giving feedback, right? Because if the two people um, who are having that discussion are not on the same page, it's not going to work. So that's, I think that's probably the case in all of those situations. And that just sort of occurred to me as you were speaking. And it's important to know where the student is in, in their life. Are they having issues in their life that's causing them to have problems? Are they having, you know, what, what are the things that are impeding them at this point? What's going on in their lives so that mm-hmm. you can even have a full understanding of where they are is very important. So if there's one thing that you've learned in your work in helping students learn clinical skills that you would like to share with our faculty colleagues, what do you think that would be? I think that, you know, every every student is unique in, in, in their own way and that we all have blocks, we all have impedances in, in our life. And if you can address it, that it's for a development in, to improve yourself and that this is not a failure, that I think that that is really the way you can approach a student to succeed. I really like, in addition to that, that makes a lot of sense, I really like what you said in terms of the why for the what, too. You know, when you give feedback, sometimes I think we forget this when we're giving learners feedback. We forget to tell them why it's important. And I remember when you and I were chatting about this um, a while back, I remember saying, so what do you mean the why for the what? So can you tell me what you mean by that when you say that? Well, I I think um, that they have to understand why something is important for Example, I had a student who um, was in their clerkships and she spoke very quickly. And it's something that she's done for her whole life, but it really gave the impression to people that she was very anxious and, um, and it didn't 
impart confidence with, with patients, and there were people that were giving that kind of feedback. The person had been told in their life that they spoke too fast and that it was not a great thing, but they didn't really understand why it was an issue. So the first thing we did is talk about why they felt it was good to speak fast. And did they think that it was giving an air of confidence and that they were very smart and could think very fast? And then the second thing is, what were other people hearing when the person was speaking fast? And did they want to be taken seriously? And did they want to impart comfort or just be a very fast thinker? And they thought about it. And for the first time, I think they came to the, the understanding that the message that they were giving off was not of being smart and fast thinking and confident, but more of being anxious and maybe not as confident. And when they started to understand that, they could start to work on changing how they were speaking and correct themselves. And so through listening and recording and stopping and correction, person was able to slow down and really had much better feedback and felt much more confident in that way. But they had to understand why it was important and not just be told you speak too fast. Yeah. So the what is you're speaking too fast and the why is the why it matters. Yeah. That's a great example. And I would imagine that there's even other whys to that right? If you speak quickly with patients, they may not understand you. They're trying to, patients need to learn from you, right? You don't want to lose them. If you're teaching, people might not be able to keep up. You know, there's there's a lot of reasons why it can Absolutely. be helpful to slow down. Yeah, that's that's great. And, and wow, you do a lot. So you really do quite a lot and very tailored learning plans with the students. Because in this case, so for example, you're courting that's not something, right, that we're going to expect a faculty preceptor to do who's teaching that student in the clerkships. But what what would you expect? Let's say you're the faculty preceptor for this student or for another student who you think is having difficulty. When should they be calling you? What, you know, what, what do you recommend they do, first of all? I'm asking you two questions, um, but backwards. What what would you expect the faculty member to do on their own? And then when would it make sense for that person to call you and get in touch? I think that if you if you think it, then it's a problem. I think that people's mm-hmm. perceptions and their their instincts, just from teaching and from seeing other students, they know when a student is having an issue. They might not be able to put their finger on it. They might not be able to say, It's X, Y, or Z, but they know that the student is not up to the standards of other students that they've been seeing. And so I think that the earlier a student is referred, the better. Definitely a big believer in preventive medicine. And I think that the earlier we get to a student who might be having issues, we prevent many, many things that might snowball from from that. So the earlier, the better. I think there are great time limitations with what faculty can do at this point. And there's also very quick transitions between teams. So it's not where they're usually on a team for a month and they can watch them repeatedly. And so there's more of a hesitation to send a student because they don't have as much experience. And that's why I say if you feel it, you just refer. 
what faculty can do is continue to give feedback to the student, watch the student, deliberate practice with the student. Those are all the things, going over the notes with the student and the differential and questioning them. But if the student is not able to learn from this, then they need to be referred so that we can help them develop strategies in which they can learn on the wards. So if they're not progressing after you know, a couple of rounds of very specific feedback and some practice um, and some observed practice with the faculty member, then that's a reasonable time for them to refer. Or I would imagine also if they see really significant issues. Significant issues are easy. It's the, it's the ones that are more subtle. Yeah. And the good thing about most of the faculty is they have a lot of experience with students. So they have a baseline in, of performance that they are expecting at certain levels of um, their development. And if a student falls outside of the standard deviations of that, then they know that there's an issue. What are some of the typical stumbling blocks that you see for students when they're learning physical diagnosis in particular? One of the major stumbling blocks is not learning the, um, not practicing enough, not learning the bones of the history taking or not learning the physical exam so that it becomes muscle memory. And what I always tell students is that if you're riding a bicycle, and you have to think about where you're putting your feet and where, where you're putting your hands on the handlebar. How are you going to move your handle, hands in order to go a certain way? You're certainly not going to be able to see the scenery and hear the scenery and, and look around you. And you're probably going to end up in the dirt. So you really have to know the structure so that you can then free up your mind so that you can hear what a patient is saying. And so that deliberate practice, that going over it, sometimes getting over their jitters of dealing with people, dealing with a patient, are some of the major stumbling blocks in the beginning um, times that the student, in the first year especially. That makes sense. And, and what are some strategies that you use to connect with students? How do you help them I would imagine oftentimes they're coming to you feeling defensive, and I don't mean defensive in a negative sense. I think that's a really natural reaction, right, um, particularly for, for people who've been really high achievers for most of their life. So how do you help them lower those defenses so that they can take in the feedback? What do you find are some really useful strategies? Well, I try to normalize it. I try to you know, again, say that we all have some stumbling blocks. First, we, we have to agree on what the issue is and if there's an issue. And so with beginning students, watching their OSCE videos is a very powerful tool because what I do is I watch it with them and I'll stop at certain points along the recording and I'll say, what do you think about that? How do you think we could change that? What do you think would be a better process? And that often kind of lets them know where more of the issues are and what I'm talking about when I say that there are issues. So it's not that, you know, they come, of course, with defenses because they are high achievers. I, 
I can't do it because it feels fake dealing with SPs or I just didn't have enough time or I had a bad day or a lot of different things. And it's not one bad day that usually people come to me. It's a recurrence of performance issues. And so we talk about it. And, and again, watching the videos is a very powerful tool. Sometimes I'll do what we call doskies with them, directly observed encounters. Well, I'll watch them with a, a patient or an SP and then give them direct feedback at that point or correct things as they go along so that they are seen as they're going. So it's a deliberate practice type of thing. What a fantastic learning opportunity that is. I'm sure nerve-wracking for the students at first, but um, but wonderful learning opportunity. But the wonderful thing about what I do, and one of the things I love about what I do is, I don't grade these students. Any student um, that I'm working with, I don't have any grade. And if I happen to have them in a class, I usually recuse myself of any grade, and I let them know that. I say I am I'm probably the safest person they could work with because I do not, mm-hmm. I do not do that. And, um, and I think that that helps them quite a bit relax and understand that I'm just there to help them. I'm not going to be on their record. I've heard you mention a couple of times the term deliberate practice, and we have mentioned that term in our podcast. And so, and, and many other times in the podcast series, we've, we have had faculty and education leaders talk about the importance of observation and feedback and clinical training. Do you have any recommendations for faculty regarding how often they should be observing students and giving them feedback? Well, the simple answer is as much as possible, because I think that the more feedback, the more observation, the more that is done with the student, the better it is, because you can't judge something you don't see, and you can't correct something that you are not seeing. So I think the, the more the better. And um, I think that is an issue where they're not observed as much as perhaps they should be. Yeah. And it's very rare that we overfeedback people. It can happen, but but pretty rare. Um, yeah. For the most part, we're, we're underfeedbacking. What do you think is an important takeaway for any faculty member working with any student in the clinical setting, whether the student is struggling or excelling or anywhere in between, what do you think is an important takeaway for them from our conversation today? I think having a student develop insight, you know, and and motivation is the key factor to affect change. And so without that, you can you can say whatever you want, but without them being able to understand what the issues are and again why they're important then even if you have some temporary gain it's not going to be sustained Mm. and what I'm looking for is a sustained improvement I always tell the students I don't care about the OSCEs or FOSCEs I or even shelf exams. What I care about is what kind of doctor they're going to be in five years from now. And that's really, I think the takeaway is have the student understand it, understand what the issues are. And we've talked about when faculty should refer to you. How how do they refer to you? And is there anything specific, is there any specific information, I should say, that they should be providing to you if they refer a student? 
usually they can email me, students email me all the time and say they want to meet. A clerkship director can send me an email and say that I have some concerns about this student. Anybody at all can just say, I have a concern, could you get in touch with this student? Or ask the student to get in touch with me. And then that's all it takes. Yeah. If so, if we do, so if we have a student and they're on their clerkships, I guess I should be clear to say if a faculty member is concerned about that student, the first thing they should do is talk to the site director or the clerkship director. So if if somebody's referring to you, um, the site director and clerkship director should be aware as well, so that everybody's on the same page. And I think I think sometimes that um, faculty are worried about going to the clerkship director because they don't want you know, they see a student trying, you know, and they they worry. They say, oh, I don't want to uh, affect the student's grade or their future or, you know, any of those things um, because I have X, Y, or Z worry. And yet that's not the, that's not what happens. You know, when you speak to the site director, clerkship director, they want to know early, just like you do, so that they can help the student, so that the student doesn't end up, you know, getting a, a low grade or failing uh, or whatever the case may be. They want to actually help the student succeed. But they should be involved if they're if they're referring to you as well. I guess that's an important point also. Yes. And, and that's why we're trying so hard to change the culture and to get the word out that this is not punitive and that this is not negative and they're not doing the student any disservice. And so a lot of work has been done and is continuing to be done to change that culture that remediation is bad because all, you know, all development is not a straight line, but as long as you get to where you need to go, it doesn't matter how long it takes or if you need to take a, a side path. And, and so the culture is, is an important point for people on the wards uh, to, to learn. In the first and second year, I think we've done a better job of it because, again, I have direct contact with many of the preceptors, and they know that it is not a punitive thing. I think that's where we're trying to get really in the culture of medicine, even with patient care. I like to ask our guests on this podcast to often to describe the benefits that teaching provides them. So I'd love to hear what you gain as a physician, an educator, just as a person by teaching clinical skills to medical students, by helping the students who are struggling. What do you get out of that personally? I think that there is no better experience than kind of seeing that light bulb go off with the students so that they get what you're talking about or feel or seeing them just become proud of being able to perform skills in a um, in a manner in which they have always wanted to it's it's a wonderful feeling I think it's it's um, there's nothing like it and um, I feel that as a physician that believes absolutely in the power of the physical exam and the history and relating to patients that really wanted to impart that to the new generation of physicians where I feel that maybe things are being a little truncated too much. And so I, I just feel a sense of, um, of excitement when I see a student get it. So that's what it brings to me. That's wonderful. I'm sure 
a lot of people who are listening agree with that. As you were talking about the power of the physical exam, I thought of one of my favorite TED Talks is Abraham Fergazi talking about the importance of touch um, yes. as a physician. If anybody hasn't seen that, highly recommend it. Eileen, thank you for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciated learning from you and with you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Really appreciate that too. So thank you. I'm Lisa Coplet. Thanks for listening. And check out our next podcast coming out next month. I would like to thank the people who contributed to the show, Katie Lyons, our fabulous producer, and David DeRoche, our program director. For more information on other faculty development opportunities at Netter, email katie.lyons at qu.edu. For more information on all of Quinnipiac's podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Also follow us on Twitter at QUPodcast and on Instagram at told.me.podcast. Dot dot